Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we chatted about an unconventional architecture tour, learned about the modern Chicago machine, and discussed magical thinking. All this plus size matters in the Trump Diaries, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for February 8, 2019. Kiefer Dunn spoke to Corey Smith about his novel architecture tour, The New Prairie School. Turning the idea of traditional docent program on its head, Smith instead turns a house into an immersive multimedia experience. This segment contains a sample of Smith's composition as well. Buildings on Air is live the first Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. I'm here in the studio now with Corey Smith. Hello. Hello. <laughs> it's so lovely to have you on the show, um, I think, f- for a lot of reasons. Um, but first, maybe you can tell us about yourself. You're, you, you're a composer, a writer, performer? Yes, yes. So uh, those are the three words that I use, is yeah. composer, performance artist, and writer. Yeah. Um, I... Uh, I uh, yeah, I'm an artist, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, is just like the shortest way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you and you've been doing this kind of run run of projects that are super intriguing. Um uh, I, I I read the description and like it it immediately had some resonance uh, with with me. Um but can you t- tell us what it, what is the new prairie school about? What inspired it? What's the ambition? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the new prairie school is the it's like this large heading uh, under which a lot of different projects occur. Yeah. Um, so the, the 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 piece has been many different things. It's been a stage show last January. It has been a couple of video pieces. Mm. It's um, an essay that's coming out in a uh, in a book later this year. Um, it's it's many different arms of this of this weird beast. <laughs> um, uh, but it all sort of revolves around the old prairie style, right? So this yeah. like uh, this movement in architecture around the turn of the century, um, this sort of like a focal point in Chicago, but happened all over uh, America. Um, and it, it, I think it's I think it's just a really a very interesting movement. Yeah. Um, in terms of its its cited ambitions, so right. I'm like very interested in in right uh, as as someone who claimed the Midwest mm. as a principal source of inspiration. Yeah. Um, in that, in that we uh, we valorize these buildings and we valorize his work, right. um, and and that he also claimed that this was of the prairie, mm. um, and that seems like a little bit of. Um, uh, it seems counterintuitive, especially given the narrative that we're spun about the Midwest yeah. uh, in contemporary American life, which is it's flat and boring and conservative. <laughs> um, and so I think that, that that is an interesting tension uh, uh, and a, an interesting focal point around Wright's work. Yeah. Uh, so the New Prairie School is an attempt to take a look at uh, the work of the prairie style and move it into a contemporary context yeah. uh, to think of it um, I was like, what does what of value is here, and how can we pull it um, into the present day in 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 different incarnations and try to make sense of it? Yeah, yeah, that sounds super interesting. Um, yeah, and and uh, these questions about like how how you pull pull inspiration and and how you relate to that are I think like. Um, questions that that many creators we we have to re- reconcile with them kind of all all the time um and so um tell us about the well one of the things we were talking about how we're going to do this well, uh, like I, I don't know i'm really bad at being a radio host because i'm always revealing how the sausage gets made <laughs> <laughs> but like uh you know you, you the, this is kind of this body of work 
is is it has so many different different um, mediums really and uh, and 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 it's really hard to translate some of them to radio and so we were discussing how to do that and what we settled on was Letterman clip style <laughs> so, which I think is about as as good a way as any um so do do you want to describe the clip and then we'll talk that's how Letterman does it or do we want to listen yeah. to the clip and then you can describe what's going on let's describe and set it up because I okay. think that, that will be important perfect uh, so okay first little rundown um the show essay on the emo Bach house uh-huh. um is uh, a deconstructed architecture tour got it um so uh the the audience uh gathers outside of the Bach house which is in Rogers Park uh-huh. um it's one of the few Frank Lloyd Wright structures in the city of Chicago proper yeah uh and then we're going to go through the house uh there's like it's like a 45 minute uh performance um we start on the sidewalk we head inside of the building and in the building there are um four other performers including myself yeah. um uh who all make music who all speak text who all perform movement yeah um around the house uh and so these two audio clips that we have are are from our rehearsal process so they're yeah. there it's, it's a little bit gnarly and i'm kind of <laughs> i'm very excited to, to play it on the radio it feels yeah. very much like uh like seeing the sausage being made yeah um so please excuse the the audio quality um but i think it is like an interesting um uh, little peek behind the curtain yeah so the first sample that we're gonna listen to is uh, an excerpt from Act Two. Uh, so we have just entered into the uh, the Bach House. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you, as an audience member, are instructed to uh, give your coat to us. Uh, we'll go hang it up. Very Midwestern. Uh, the- <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a good host. <laughs> Midwestern actually would be stealing it. Uh, coat, we're selling it. <laughs> this is exactly what I'm talking about. The real Midwest here. Um, yeah, come on. <laughs> Uh, so you have taken a seat in the house, uh, and this is what you hear around you. So this is Act Two. Okay. And you wait. Thank you. 
suppose there's no stretching out. Instead of internalization, a reflection of itself, the host transforms itself to reach you. After the bookshelf becomes the end of the bench, the player plays papers down a high wall into a low wall. The mantle disappears into the side, and the room used to create the fireplace spreads out to create a kind of carpet in front of me. spoke with author Ben Ehrenreich about the magical thinking behind the myths of progress in Western civilization. What has Western civilization actually wrought? And is the term itself an oxymoron? This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Here to help us examine our misguided faith in progress, author Ben Ehrenreich wrote the article After the Storm, Progress and the Demented Quest for Historical Purity, which appears in the Baffler number 43. Welcome to This is Hell, Ben. Thank you, Chuck. How's it going? Good. Ben is the author of the novels Ether and The Suitors. His latest nonfiction book is 2017's The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Ehrenreich, and you can find out more about Ben at his website, BenEhrenreich.net. What do you mean by, and I hate to do this, I hate to parse a title of somebody's work, but what do you mean by historical purity, and who is seeking this historical purity? Well, um, to, to make a, a really complicated uh, essay as simple as I can, um, something happened in about the middle of the 18th century, um, and, and two things happened at roughly the same time, more than these two things, and I'm just going to talk about them. Um, and one is that you see the first articulations of what we now understand as the narrative of progress. Um, this notion that things are improving, that time is a on a one-way track, um, and it's getting better. Um, and you know, w- one thing that I note in the in the piece is that this is always um, time is always understood also in terms of space, um, in terms of places on the globe. Um, so the the place of the present, which is also the place of the future, is Europe. Um, this is where things are getting better. And the place of the past is, for the most part, understood as the Americas, which is the sort of the, the most sort of savage and barbaric land, you know, peopled by barbarian tribes. Um, so progress at once works in time, and it, and it you know, traces out this straight arrow from, from savagery um, to the heights of European civilization, and it works as a way of placing the people on the globe on this, on this hierarchy. Um, and at around the same time, um, there was 
something else going on, which a, a scholar named Martin Bernal wrote about um, a lot in the 80s and 90s in this sort of titanic three-volume work called Black Athena, which was the kind of ethnic scrubbing, um, we could say ethnic cleansing if we want, of um, of European um, heritage, of the... Of the um, Heritage of the Renaissance um, and of, of European civilization properly, because you know if if Europe was going to be on top, um, if Europe was going to be the the great inheritor of of all of um, human history, it needed to give itself a heritage, and it needed to give itself a, a very pure lineage, and it did that um, in various ways by denying the African and the Middle Eastern and Mesopotamian. Um, links to what we now understand as classical civilization to Greek and, and Roman culture. Um, you know, during the, during the Renaissance, which is not that much long, uh, not that you know, distant time to this period, uh, people had been very happy to understand, first of all, they didn't understand themselves as the, the greatest civilization on earth. They, under, they, they believed very, you know, very clearly that the greatness was in the past. Um, greatness belonged to the Greeks and to the Egyptians, um, and they had no problem um, like admitting the greatness of of other civilizations that were not European. And this stops um, beginning in the in the mid eighteenth century, so that by the nineteenth century we have this fiction, um, which we still have today, um, and we you know we see it coming out very clearly in, I think, the, the really heightened racial discourse that's come out since Trump's election, um, this fiction that there is this thing called Western civilization, which is this straight line of progress that goes from the Greeks, who just sort of exist suddenly in this wonderful, you know, uh, sort of white statued purity um, of, of reason suddenly landing on the earth, um, through the Romans, um, into Europe, um, and eventually across the Atlantic to the United States. And that we have this great heritage, uh, which is purely European, and everyone else are sort of these, these awful, irrational savages uh, that would still be, you know, kicking around in the dirt if it wasn't for us. And, you know, we see this reflected very clearly in some of Trump's uh, comments about African nations. We see this in, uh, in the comments of his supporters all the time and in the discourses of many of our highly respected public intellectuals. Um, and this is, I think, you know, very clearly a discourse of, of white supremacy. Yeah, yeah, that was a fantastic overview. One of the things I was thinking about when reading your article was how we have, uh, since the mid-18th century, we'll get into the writing of uh, Turgot in a little bit that uh, talks about this, but how that kind of thinking about the Western civilization, uh, how that affects our imagination, how it creates a more balkanized world, how us turning, our, how the Europe, Europe turning its back on past civilizations after revering them for so long, kind of, uh, you know, balkanized the world and made the, the, the Europe in our imagination, Middle East in our imagination, made in Asia in our imagination. None of these things really existed. Was the world more globalized far before globalization? Was it more globalized before 1750 than it is today? Because it seems like this reverence for past civilizations would cross borders and not make us as balkanized, would make us more globalized. Were we more of a globalized culture before globalization? I mean, I think the, really, you know, going back uh, millions of years, as long as humans have, um, you know, since humans left Africa, 
humans have been moving constantly. And, and I mean, and I think uh, trade routes go back much farther than we thought they did. Um, global levels of trade. I think, you know, globalization is, a, is, a, is an absolutely ancient phenomenon. Um, I think Europe, certainly, uh, you know, until the, you know, 14th century, certainly, uh, was not a particularly sophisticated or cosmopolitan place. It was an incredibly backward place. You know, if, if at the time, if you wanted to look at where the sort of most exciting civilizations on the on the planet were, you would not look to Europe. Um, you know, you, you would be much more likely to to look to the Indian subcontinent, to to, to China, to the Americas, to parts of Africa, um, where there were you know civilizations that were far more you know technologically and intellectually developed than Europeans were. Um, but you know, one of the things that happened, of course, in 1492, is is the Europeans happen across the Americas, and more or less accidentally, uh, not entirely accidentally, they did what they could to help it along, but through you know the help of of you know bacteria um, and viruses, uh, wipe out most of the continent and um, do their best to kill the people that disease doesn't take care of, and then bring all of that wealth back. Um, and with that moment, with that, with that conquest, Europe was able to start telling itself this story about its superiority uh, and to believe it um, and to try to figure out ideology, ideological ways to account for it, um, you know, narratives that would justify it. Um, and uh, I think, you know, we're still obviously dealing with this. But in that notion of... European superiority in that notion of European progress, if Europeans really believe in that notion of progress, and if they really have that faith in progress, then how is 20th century fascism allowed? How does fascism fit into that notion of faith in progress? You know, I mean, I think fascism, uh, I think if you look at uh, the you know, intellectual roots of European fascism, whether they're, you know, the Italian fascism or, or Nazism, um, they had a profound belief in progress, which is, I think, deeply tied to, um, to the, you know, a lot of the um, 19th and 18th century thinkers that we, that, you know, are still quite accepted today. Um, you know, there, there was a profound and I think even utopian, although we look back on it with horror, um, belief that, uh, human society could be could be perfected, um, and I, I think you know in the this notion of a you know certainly if you look if you look at the um, at you know if you look at the architecture of fascism whether it's in in uh, in Germany or in, in Italy um, it's calling back on these classical roots um, you know Hitler the the intellectuals around Hitler did everything they could to tell this. To tell a story of a of racial purity that went back for centuries, um, and uh, you know, and, and that very much I think is the same story that we that we see in uh, that I'm describing here um, of all connections to the rest of the world being um, sort of cut off and rejected um, in order to establish this pure lineage. <laughs> First day I met you, you were singing as you went about your work Said I want to sing along, but I just whistled because I was lost for words You danced around the back room and I watched you, though I felt that I should not 
For I should catch that overwhelming feeling And forever I'd be God Speak to me now Love me somehow going home Cause I can't stand to be around you If I cannot get you all alone Jeremy Lucero talked with a variety of teachers about the successful Los Angeles teacher strike. Labor Express, which covers workers' issues, airs every Sunday night at 8 p.m. During the rally, I had a conversation with Charles Stamm, a fifth-grade teacher in Los Angeles. Charles provided an excellent overview of what the strike was all about, and though he, at that point, had not had a chance to review the tentative agreement, you could hear the sense of accomplishment in his words. Charles Stamm, I'm a fifth-grade teacher at uh, Wilshire Park Elementary, Koreatown section of L.A., now, you're out here at the rally at Grand Park. This is uh, the sixth day, I guess, they're calling this a strike. Is that right? Right. Sixth day. And another massive rally here. I mean, there have been several. I guess the, the rally on Friday, I wasn't able to be here for that, but I heard it was like 60,000 people or so. They've had no problem getting big crowds. Uh, 98% of the teachers voted that they would strike months ago. So uh, as far as the support, this is the highest support UTLA has ever had by far. So... I'm not surprised. Okay. And all the indication is, too, that the public is really behind you. I, I know there were polls done that said about 80% of people surveyed said that they stood behind the teachers. And when you have a rally on Friday that's 60,000, given that there's only 33,000 members in UTLA, you're talking about half that crowd as people are supporting you guys. Right. And we had at our school, parents and students showed up. But the longer the strike went on, the more they showed up. So it just seemed that the support was increasing uh, all the time. So. We were pretty happy with the way things turned out, and we're not surprised to see for the rest of the district that that is also the case. I was just talking to a couple of SEIU members who uh, are out on a sympathy strike with you guys today, a solidarity strike, but they were in the schools last week, and I asked them how things were going in the schools, and it was a school about a little over 400 students. They said they had one sub, and then a bunch of administrators trying to run things at the school. Um, but they said they were only getting about 40 students or so showing up out of 400. So that also shows, I think, that the parents basically were willing to, you know, say, "Hey, we're gonna, we're not gonna bring our kids into school until the teachers have this, you know, have a contract." Right. And this is, a, despite many cases, the district warning them that if they were absent, that there'd be repercussions and things like that. Uh, about three days in, they were forced to uh, send out a thing saying there wouldn't be repercussions, and. Uh, so the longer the strike went on, the less and less students showed up at school because they knew nothing was happening there. No real education was going on. So that was their way of showing support. We are eternally grateful to them. And my understanding, too, is that the union was very deliberate in the months leading up to the strike to really work with parents and community groups to build that support. So it was, it was something that they realized was key to the success of the strike. Absolutely. I think the whole idea that this was strictly for our salary I think uh, teachers, parents, we've been sick and tired of the way they've been staffing and funding the schools. And so finally, I mean, when they made their demands, they stepped up for everybody, not just uh, us. And uh, even though Butner wanted to portray it as we offered 6%, they want 6.5%, and that's it. And their bootlick, the LA Times, did nothing but parrot that view. Uh, we just kept the me on message that, you know, we wanted these schools to be properly funded and staffed. 
So like I guess we're on the sixth day of the strike, but it's looking like this rally is turning maybe into a victory rally. I know that there, the news is just coming out. I know there's not a lot of information out there yet, but what what do you know or what have you heard or what do you, what's your thoughts about the fact that there might be a tentative agreement? Right. Uh, well, I'm pretty happy about that there's going to be one. I love being in the classroom. I do not like being on the picket line. So uh, as far as I haven't heard much, I know when we listened to the press conference, it sounded optimistic. But there's no victory until this thing is voted on, and there has to be, and when in any sort of strike, there's going to be give and take. But I think we did pretty well. I think they were stunned at seeing everybody showing up, and it just growing and growing and growing. I think that was a big impetus for getting them to actually seriously bargain, which they had not done for months, and getting also the political uh, people, the mayor, to come in and. Uh, you know, offer to mediate. So we're very happy with the way that turned out. What's your thoughts on that issue of the mayor? I, you know, I, my understanding is the union uh, has had a pretty good relationship with the mayor and that they were really glad to see him step in and be a moderator in this discussion. Do you think he played a positive role? Uh, I'll let you know after we vote, but yeah, I would right. say it's looking good. I would say yes, definitely. I think once, um, you know, he said he was going to step in. Now we have a neutral, essentially a neutral uh, mediator. And so that put the pressure on both to really kind of come together and come to some sort of agreement. Uh, it wasn't easy because, I mean, they were going at it for uh, three days of solid negotiations or from Friday, really. So, uh, yes, definitely I think Garcetti had a, an effect by simply stating that he'd come in to mediate. Size matters, size matters, with Kyle Seismankowski. All right, uh, okay, now this thing's on. Interview with Jessica for the Size Matters producer job. Uh, can, can you work this thing? I've never even seen one of those. Well, I mean, if I can figure it out, anybody can. To be honest, I haven't spent much time on that side of the recorder. All right, no worries. You know, we're, we're fairly easygoing at Lumpen, but we are trying to clean up some of the mistakes we've uh, made in the past. Uh, host? He's some sort of anthropologist? Mm, he's uh, more of a native. How do you mean? Indigenous to the area. What? You know, he's, he'll be here soon. You'll find out. Uh, what's the show about? Yeah, it's about two to ten minutes long. You know, slice of life stuff. Have you settled on a name? He, uh, size matters. Excuse me? That's the name. Really? Sounds like spam mail. Is this Kyle on the level? Yeah, he'll be here soon. Is that a no? Listen, uh, there's, a, there's a reason Kyle's the host. He's an expert about Bridgeport. Well, so are you. What does he have to... Walking through the door right now is the guy I saw selling lumpen oh, radio oh, shirts oh. over by the viaduct. Jameson! J- Jameson! Hey. Kyle, this is Jessica. Uh, Jessica, I, I, this is Kyle. I made good cash on them t-shirts. Kyle, not, not now. And I sold a bunch of swag. Kyle, zip it. This guy is the host? Yeah, um... Yes, I am. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you. I don't like no radio journalists and their dumb ethics and journalism nonsense. Wow. And I don't like folks talking at me like they know it all. You ever hear Ballad of a Thin Man? Okay, okay Kyle, come on. Slow down, man. Exploiting the elderly is illegal. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> I've been telling them. <laughs> I don't know if this gig is going to work for me. Well, hold on, Jessica. Why don't you ask us some questions before you call it? You ever been in trouble with the cops? Not legally, no. What? <laughs> Next question. Uh, as your producer, will my life be um, in danger? On occasion, yes. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, of course not. Look, there, Jess, you're going to have to sign a contract. It's real standard stuff. He's a home bum, and that's ominously vague. 
Now, we got some questions for you. What? You got any journalistic experience and or do you know how to work this thing here? Nope and nope. You're from Chicago? No, I'm new to town. Ah, damn. That's right. I'm sorry, Jess. Ed really wants the new producer to be a local. Bummer. Sorry, guys. Now, wait. Hold on. Don't apologize. You're perfect. How about instead of my producer, you'll be my biographer? A biographer? Uh, ho- hold on, Kyle. You're going to need a recorded device and a steno pad. Um, What's a steno No, Kyle, we pad. talked about what we need to fix here. Now, Ed told me to take charge, and so I am. Only size matters. I'm an insider. She's an outsider. The dichotomy you know, is perfect. Uh, Kyle, you know what? Fine. Jess, if you want to get involved with this, it's on you. The good and the bad. Sure. I'm in. Awesome. I just have one last question. All right, shoot. How'd you do with the uh-huh. and radio swag out on the street? Oh, yeah, Jamie, we made it like 60... Not cool, Kyle. Not cool. That's good. It's all 60 bucks. Dude, shut up. This week on the Trump Diaries, is a wall a wall? Deutsche Bank says, no thanks. Leaked schedules show Trump hardly works at all. Trump's inaugural committee is subpoenaed. And Trump preaches unity at a divisive State of the Union address. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 743, February 1st. Trump gave a wide-ranging interview to the New York Times. In that interview, Trump claimed that Rod Rosenstein told him he was not a target in Robert Mueller's probe. Trying to downplay the significance of his extended negotiations with Russian officials during the campaign and claimed he was not involved in getting his son-in-law a security clearance. He also denied speaking to Roger Stone about WikiLeaks. Trump told the Times he would run again in 2020 because, quote, I love this job. After going on to claim, quote, I have lost massive amounts of money. Quote, being president is one of the great losers of all time. You know, fortunately, I don't need money. This is one of the great losers of all time. Trump ridiculed the bipartisan committee working to avoid another shutdown. Calling it a waste of time, as it does not appear to have funding for his cherished wall, Trump called the debate between fencing and a wall political games. Then he tweeted out, quote, a wall is a wall in all caps. Trump is preparing to call a national emergency to get his wall built, a prospect that is splitting the Republican Party. Should Trump do that, it would go straight to the courts and set a precedent that a future president could use. Pelosi has been adamant that while she is willing to increase border security funding, she will not allocate money for a wall. Cory Booker became the latest Democrat to announce a bid for the presidency in 2020. Kellyanne Conway immediately claimed that suggested Booker is sexist because he's running against Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Tulsi Gabbard. Quote, if you were a Republican running against them, they would immediately call him a sexist for running against these women. In related news, Elizabeth Warren apologized to the Cherokee Nation for taking a DNA test to prove her Native American ancestry. Also, former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz faced protests in his hometown of Seattle before an alleged independent campaign kickoff event. One week after a White House security specialist told the media that Jared Kushner's top secret security clearance was approved over strenuous objections, Trisha Newbold was suspended. Newbold had previously filed an EEO commission complaint against her supervisor, Carl Klein. And Sheldon and Marion Adelson donated $500,000 to a legal defense fund to pay legal costs for Trump aides involved in the Mueller investigation. The Adelsons combined gave $100 million to Republican candidates in 2018. Day 744, February 2nd. Trump said he doesn't have to agree with his intelligence chiefs about worldwide threats. Trump said in an interview with CBS that he wants, quote, them to give me their opinion, but not to share them publicly with Congress. 
According to the NSA, Trump displays willful ignorance when presented with analysis and simply will not listen to briefings. Trump also would not commit to making Robert Mueller's final report public. Quote, it depends on what it's going to say, but it's time to get rid of the Russia witch hunt. The decision is, quote, totally up to the attorney general. Meanwhile, that nominee, William Barr, has also not committed to making that report public. Deutsche Bank refused to give Trump a loan during his 2016 presidential campaign. The decision was made by senior leaders at the bank who worried about what would happen if Trump won the election and then defaulted. Deutsche Bank would have had to choose between not collecting on the debt or seizing the assets of the President of the United States. The Trump Organization specifically wanted a loan against a Miami property to work on the Turnberry Golf Course located in Scotland. Trump currently owes at least $130 million to Deutsche Bank. And the USA withdrew from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Russia has been violating that 1987 arms control treaty for more than five years after building a new intermediate system. Day 745, February 3rd. In a pre-Super Bowl interview, Trump said he would be uncomfortable if his son Barron played football. Barron happens to be a talented soccer player who was trained with DC United's U-12 team. Mysterious phone calls made by Donald Trump Jr. ahead of the infamous 2016 Trump Tower meeting with Russians were apparently not made to his father. According to new evidence obtained by the Senate Intelligence Committee, Trump instead spoke to Brian France, who is the head of NASCAR, and the investor Howard Lorber. Lorber has significant investments in Russia. He claimed through a spokesman, quote, he didn't recall any calls with Trump Jr. and regardless, quote, never discussed any Russian matters. Trump, in fact, traveled with Lorber to Russia to instigate the building of a Trump Tower there. And according to leaked internal schedules, Trump hardly works at all at the White House. Trump spends nearly 60% of his day in so-called executive time. He usually spends the first five hours of the day at the White House watching TV and then calling advisors and colleagues to discuss what he's seen. Day 746, February 4th. Trump is planning to keep troops in Iraq to monitor and pressure Iran. Iraqi President Barham Saleh rebutted Trump's claim, saying he did not ask for permission to station more U.S. troops in his country, specifically to watch Iran. Apparently, the U.S. has been quietly negotiating for weeks to move hundreds of troops stationed in Syria to bases in Iraq so they can continue to attack ISIS strongholds from there. Iraq and Iran, who are long enemies, are currently allied. Acting EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler moved to appoint several climate change deniers to its science advisory board. And the White House claimed that Trump's tan is the result of good genes. According to multiple people who spent time in the White House, there is no spray bed or spray tan booth in the residence, the East Wing, or on Air Force One. Day 747, February 5th. Trump's inaugural committee has been ordered to hand over documents as federal investigators look into questions of money laundering, election fraud, and illegal contributions. The move escalates an investigation that began last year on the eve of the State of the Union address. Trump's inaugural committee raised a record $107 million, more than twice the amount raised to fund Obama's inaugural. Federal prosecutors are also seeking documents related to an L.A. venture capitalist, Imad Zuberi, who gave nearly a million dollars to the committee through a private equity firm. He once registered as a foreign agent working on behalf of the Sri Lankan government. Sarah Huckabee Sanders attempted to claim that the Trump inaugural committee subpoena has nothing to do with the White House. When it was pointed out that the common thread in all these investigations is Donald Trump, Sanders replied the common thread is hysteria over the fact that this president became president. Prosecutors are looking at three lobbying firms recruited by Paul Manafort. Mercury Public Affairs, the Podesta Group, and Skadden, Arp, Slade, and Meager, and Flom are being examined for representing foreign governments without registering as foreign agents. All firms were hired by Manafort to work on the image of the then-Russia-aligned president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych. 
And the commander of U.S. Central Command said he was not consulted ahead of Trump's announcements that troops would leave Syria. General Joseph Attell said that the fight against ISIS also was not over. Day 748, February 6th. Trump delivered a highly partisan State of the Union address while trying to preach unity and, of all things, feminism. Flanked by a sea of new female House Democrats wearing all white, Trump devoted 15 minutes of the hour and 22-minute speech to immigration, saying he would build a wall and offering no concessions to DACA recipients. Trump also made a number of false claims about the economy, immigration, and abortion, in one case claiming a Democratic official supported, quote, ripping babies out of a mother's womb. One thing Trump did not mention was the government shutdown, which he instigated. The official Democratic response came from Stacey Abrams, who lost a close race for governor in Georgia in an election marred by irregularities in voter suppression. Abrams brushed aside Trump's calls for unity, saying, quote, This administration chooses to cage children and tear families apart, and adding, We must hold everyone from the highest office to our families accountable for racist words and deeds, and call racism for what it is, wrong. Despite Trump's supposed calls for unity, he had begun the day by attacking various Democrats who one supposes he would have to work with in the coming months. He called Chuck Schumer, quote, a nasty son of a bitch and said, I hope it's Biden running against him in 2020 because he is dumb. Trump also slurred Elizabeth Warren and the late John McCain. Trump, however, offered praise for Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris. Democratic freshman women showed up to the State of the Union as a block wearing all white. The outfits were a tribute to the suffragettes and created an unmistakable piece of political theater. Predictably, far-right figures tried to tie the outfits to the Ku Klux Klan, echoing a theme started on Fox News. Trump's approval ratings have fallen to 37% in a new ABC poll, the lowest ever for a president at this point in his term. These are the Trump Diaries. Melanie Adcock spoke to Robert Jacoby of ARC and the Open Source Software Project. Jacoby discussed why engineers give their labor away for free, why ICANN means so much, and what open source software means for the world at large. TechScene Chicago airs every Friday at 11 a.m. And with open source software, there's a global community of people all working together to build and maintain a whole software platform. And I thought you could tell us uh, what the community interaction is like when it comes to open source teams. Most of it is, because it's global and distributed, very digital. So there are Slack channels and other communication tool channels where people are batting ideas around back and forth, trying to improve the project, uploading new code uh, to Git repositories. Uh, A lot of tech talk there, Mm -hmm. but uh, a lot of these projects are are fundamentally Mm -hmm. tech-driven. They may have a philosophy one way or the other, but a lot of technologies are driving them. Uh, from that, from the beginning, uh, what's what all these projects at least try to do at some level is have the person-to-person contact. So if we look at Joomla, there are Joomla days all around the world. If you look at uh, WordPress or Drupal, they have WordCamps and Drupal Camps, mm-hmm. and some of them are much bigger than others. So there's a Joomla World Conference coming up in 2019. There's a WordCamp US in St. Louis. I think it's in September. WordCamp in Europe in Berlin in June, uh, DrupalCon in Seattle in April. Hmm. I'm just trying to stretch my brain there. But there are attempts to have uh, all these communities at least have some kind of level of both a, a global focus for one or two events and then distributed local events. So they can actually meet up and share expertise in technology or best business practices or just have a Coke and a beer. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that and that sounds good too. And I and I, I wanted to ask you about the system of organization of open source uh, groups and and it, the community sounds um, so fascinating as far as like the the local versus the global what we just talked about. But the, how they're organized, they often have flat hierarchies. And I thought you could talk to us about what that is like. Um, you know, from from your work in with Joomla, the open source community, how it's structured, and what are some of the advantages. Uh, of this system and or disadvantages, pros or cons. Um, just, just tell us what it's like. I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. <laughs> so the uh, open source community typically jokes about two types of governance, and that's mm-hmm. what we call it out there, just governance. So you have the very flat governance models, which is much more what Joomla does. There's a little bit of leadership because that's required for incorporation and maintaining intellectual property at some level. But the rest of the community is very flat. And what's great about a very flat community is that it's very easy to get into a position where you can make a difference right away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, Joomla being a 100% volunteer organization has been very successful uh, at growing a a wide and uh, flat, maybe not so deep organization, but it it does allow if someone is interested to quickly jump in and make a very uh, strong impact. With projects like uh, Drupal and WordPress, there's always uh, there's a little acronym. Um, I'll just state straight out the benevolent dictator for life, and there's a joking pros and cons around that. So in the WordPress community, you have Matt Mullenweg who created WordPress, mm-hmm. and in Drupal, uh, Dries Breitart, mm-hmm. and they exert a very strong force over the project. So it's a it's a little bit more hierarchical. Uh, the plus side is it's easy to get things done quickly. There's usually a a higher level of accountability and direction, whereas in a very flat community, there's a lot of voices, and it's mm-hmm. it's a, it's a very big democracy. But sometimes democracies move very slowly. Whereas in the uh, benevolent dictator universe, you can get things done pretty quickly, and for better or for worse. And people like one model or another. Some are more successful than others in different ways, and it's really depending on what you're looking to accomplish both as a developer, as an end user, as a designer, which models work best for you if you want to be in deep in an open source project. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, giving us a lot of great insight, Taryn. And, and, and how how is uh, meeting people in the open source projects that you've worked on, Robert, helped you and your other businesses? The, the communities that actually wind up getting people to show up together are, are generally very friendly and generous. I think of all the communities I've mentioned in the content management space, they truly are generous and are looking out for each other, uh, first and foremost for each other within a project, but even outside of that, how they can grow their ecosystems. And to have more people in a project only benefits that project. So there's always a lot of rah-rah, we, you know, we really want you on board anyway, because if you're on board, no matter what, you're do, what you do, even if you're a competitor, that only grows the system. And having that system grow uh, brings new life and ideas to the project. So uh, I've met and worked in projects for WordPress, um, Joomla, of course, um, Drupal. And we have you know companies all over the world. There's like RT Camp out in India, which is a mm-hmm. WordPress VIP partner who I'd have never met if I hadn't somehow traveled through the Joomla to the WordPress world. Or uh, GoWP down in, in Atlanta, which is a WordPress maintenance firm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's exciting things, and you get even ancillary businesses, so a lead generation firm like RainCloud out of uh, Austin and Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So that you, it's a global community, and it's what's interesting is how much benefit you can get from 
meeting just one or two people, uh, you know, outside of your normal sphere, who you wouldn't unless you were in one of these projects, and the kinds of relationships, uh, both business and technical, that you can get out of them for relatively little effort. I mean, it's going to be on your own dime, on your own free time, but I I feel that the benefits have certainly outweighed any of the uh, requirements of being there. Yeah, mm. and uh, and that that is so just so interesting, um, and I, I loved hearing um, all about that. But and can you also tell us about um, uh, ICANN and the work you've been doing with them? Now, for our listeners who are not familiar, ICANN stands for Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, and this is uh, an organization that helps the internet stay organized, right? It is pretty much the internet. Uh, without can without I can you would not be able to get to Amazon or Google or Apple dot com uh, any of these organizations they are the uh, super library and repository of where everything goes at, at at some point so there there are a lot of steps in between but at the end of the day they're deciding and uh, authorizing s- someone to be on the internet. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's managed through a process of registries, which sort of own like .com or .edu mm-hmm. to registrars who actually sell domain names uh, further down the line. So you, you could have melanie.com. Um, All right. And there's that process. Uh, someone else may own it. And then there's, a whole, do. there's a whole process that ICANN has created so that you can have arbitration. And if you owned it because of uh intellectual property issues from 20 years ago, you can arbitrate to get that name back. Or if you want to purchase it, uh, because of the way ICANN has set up sort of the legal uh, structural infrastructure around that, you can actually buy and sell domain names. And there's actually a very large market around that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Back in the day, it was just called, you know, domain squatting, cyber squatting, but now it's a, a much more legitimate practice. And yeah, but they do run the internet. If uh, if you're not uh, if you're going somewhere, it's because ICANN made it successful at some point. Uh, my personal role on that is I sit on the ICANN North American at Large Committee, mm-hmm. and that's to advocate for small and mid-sized businesses to make sure their voices are heard throughout the organization. It's a very large uh, organization that spans globally, of course, uh, and it's also very deep and hierarchical. So getting the voices of small businesses who may have issues or ideas of what it means to have a domain name and can I get dot Melanie? So it could be radio dot Melanie. Mm-hmm. Is that possible? And bringing up those uh, questions and issues to the leadership. Terriers rolled into Studio A for a John Daly session, presenting material off their newest release, I Don't Still Want To Unless You Want To. This is Anything. And harder to discern what really hurts Got mixed up messages and signals sent by semaphore And I have limited ideas for what might work Tried to make it at a party with a friend of mine Gone the moment 
And I was left standing still And everybody says I should be having fun To the reckless things I did Still as foolish as it was I did not deviate I persisted to the end And that was it Now there's fire in your lungs And you have cried enough And I've been hauled over the coals Put on thin ice Tempted more than once to break the silence of You simply make an effort to be nice As if there's anything in this world They could get the ghost of that Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. Incidental music this week by Head. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>